My guest today is a director of global sales development at Shutterstock and a founding coach at SDR Nation and listed in Sales Hackers Top 10 in Sales Development. Here's some of the things colleagues have had to say about her. Megan is a stellar example of how her dedication to mentorship can deliver positive impacts throughout an organization. Her willingness to share knowledge has directly improved my outreach to prospective clients and focus on building strong client relationships. Here's another one. She is one of the smartest individuals that I've had the pleasure of working with and learning from. If you want to take your game to the next level and really learn how to become the best and become an A player, Megan can help you get there. Here's another one. She is a superstar coach and mentor and genuinely cares about the individual and what motivates them personally. Megan is a smart, strategic, big picture thinker who gets things done. She has a rare combination of talents. She's creative, ambitious, and enthusiastic, but also hardworking and sensible. She's extremely confident and a natural leader while being liked by everyone. And her energy, drive, and enthusiasm are infectious. Megan Suckling, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm feeling pretty nice after that intro. So thanks for saying all those things. Well, you've earned them all. They're all in your LinkedIn profile. And the thing was, there was so many of them I could have picked from. And that's, you know, the challenge is just to kind of whittle it down to a few key points to kind of give people a sense of what are the common themes that come across and uh, the one I pick, well, it, you, you seem to be a very, uh, an all-rounder in that you're fun, supportive to be with, but also serious, professional at the same time. And that seems to be a great combination to be able to develop. Not, not everybody has that talent, for sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, I definitely really care about people. Um, and I try yeah. to, to show that in my leadership. So yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> Were you always that way? As, as a kid growing up, was that clear in school or is it something you developed later in life? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's always been something that's been really core to who I am um, and has showed in a number of different ways. Um, I've always really liked to help people and I think it's taken me a while to figure out how I can do that um, while still building a career that I'm really excited about. Um, so yeah, definitely mentorship, coaching um, has always been a, a huge part of, of who I am. Um, my mom also... Uh, loves to help people. She was a physiotherapist. Um, so I think that that was really core to who, who she was. And she definitely passed that down to me. Sounds like she might have been a big influence on, on who you are today. Exactly. Yeah, actually, my whole family, um, we're, we're all really close. Um, my dad actually was in sales um, as well, has been his whole life. So got a little bit of that sales hustle and sales influence from him. Um, combined mm. with really like a passion for for helping people um, from mm. my mom, um, a little bit there too. So definitely mm. a, a core part of my upbringing. I've often wondered it, how much does it impact children when their parents are in a particular profession? I know some of my friends would have gone into engineering, for example, because maybe their father was an engineer or their mother was in a particular profession and, and they followed suit. Do you think that was a big factor in your choosing sales? I think it really depends on the parenting style. Um, my parents were always really incredible in that they were really supportive of what I wanted to do no matter what it was. Um, I know that you know for a lot of children that that's not always necessarily the case. It's very much go be a lawyer, go be a doctor, uh, these strict professions. Um, and I'm lucky that my parents were always really open um, and supportive mm. and wanted to create an environment where I could be creative and explore my passions and kind of just figure it out on my own. Um, I think it's always a bit funny that I ended up uh, in a sales career similar to my dad, but I don't think it was maybe directly because of that correlation. Yeah. You're based in Toronto, right? Yes, you got it. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Unionville, which is just about a half hour uh, drive northeast of Toronto. Um, so the greater Toronto area. So pretty close to the downtown, but just a little bit out in the suburbs. Yeah. Is Toronto the city? I've never been there. Uh, on, uh, my only time in Canada was just a stop over at the airport, sadly. And, uh, yeah, because there's, there's, there's a couple of places that I've always wanted to go to on my bucket list, and one of them is Banff National Park. Mm -hmm. um, I, As you can see from my backdrop, I like to take photographs, and which was interesting when I saw Shutterstock as, 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 on, on your CV as well. Um, but, yeah, that's it's such a beautiful country from what I can see. Unfortunately, I've, I've not been there. 
Is Toronto the city that has a lot of those underground walkways and shops? Yeah, like, we've got a, a whole a whole underground system. Yeah. Um, we've got a honestly a pretty subpar public transit system in Toronto compared to a lot of major cities in the world. Um, but there is some underground shopping that you can do, underground pathways. Um, definitely the more beautiful part of Canada is out in British Columbia. Um, that's actually where my fiance is from. And so we spend a lot of time out west um, as well, which is much better for the soul. Lots of hiking, beautiful mountains, uh, oceanscapes uh, here and there as well. So it's nice to have a bit of a bit of both worlds. I'm curious to know how you went from leaving full-time education and, and sales. Was it direct entry or did you have some, like me, some meandering path through another professional? Yeah, so I actually, um, I did a, a bachelor's and a master's degree in communications um, and always really saw myself in marketing, um, specifically digital marketing. Um, so I kind of entered, actually, I worked for a, a university called Queen's University right after I graduated um, because I was really just obsessed with, with learning um, and being surrounded by smart people, being surrounded um, by an educational environment. Um, I actually worked in the faculty of engineering for my first uh, for my first job, so very different field than what I was used to, but some you know tremendous learning experience. And mm. as a, a naturally really curious person, um, that was really cool. Um, you know, really got into digital marketing there and, and started to build out digital strategy. Um, and then I actually went and worked for a nonprofit um, for a little while. And this actually goes back to my my passion for helping people. Um, was I, I think I was really trying to figure out how do I make my work more purposeful, more meaningful. Mm. Um, and so I went and worked for the Canadian Cancer Society for a year. Um, but it was through those experiences that I realized that marketing just wasn't moving at the pace that I wanted um, for my career. It's uh, the kind of profession that, you know, you really have to spend two, three, four, five years before you maybe get promoted to that next level. Um, and I was just too hungry for that. I just wanted more, faster. Um, so that's kind of how I found my way into a sales career. Um, oddly enough, I've actually always sold to marketers um, throughout the, the two different uh, jobs that I've had in, in the sales profession. So still very linked to marketing, um, but just a bit, of a, a bit of a different side of the equation. Yeah, marketing is one of those professions that you go to kind of as you're nearing retirement and you don't want to work too hard and you just want to take it easy, put your feet up for the day, right? Sorry. Maybe, yeah. Don't comment. I, uh, don't comment. I don't want to get you in trouble. Don't comment. Totally. I will <laughs> I'm say only that. kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only don't. kidding. Not at all. I'm just totally. teasing my my marketing friends. That's all. But uh, it's uh, it's it's marketing is one of those. Actually, I do think, and, and it's interesting to hear your take on the fact that you have to spend longer in it to get promoted. I never thought of that. I do think marketing is is moving quite quickly and actually mm -hmm. keeping up to date with getting attention of prospects is getting more and more difficult. There's more and more noise, particularly in the digital space. And, and therefore, my hat's off to those people who are really, really good at it on a serious note. Uh, but I'd never thought of the, the, that side of it, that, yeah, you're right. And it's interesting. Yeah. Sales, you can go out and make a, a more immediate impact because people kind of pay attention to the, to the POs coming across the line, I guess. Yeah. And I think too, it, it also depends on the company that you're working for, right? So my experiences as a marketer were in higher education and the nonprofit sector. And so those are, you know, historically a bit slower moving industries, um, certainly not B2B marketing, which I think, as you said, is, is moving at a lot faster pace, um, yeah. especially these days. But it de definitely did help sort of push me um, into a bit of a different career that I maybe wasn't always planning uh, as I came out of higher education, but uh, was very excited to to land in eventually. And tell me then, um, and maybe I missed it, was when you went from that into sales where you were carrying a number, when did you make that transition? Yeah, so I, I spent about a year at the Canadian Cancer Society uh, leading their social media team there. Um, and actually around that time, I was uh, being sold to by Hootsuite, um, which is a Canadian social media management uh, tech platform that some of you might be familiar with. Yeah, no, and I'm familiar with Hootsuite. They're, good, they're well known. They're, they're a global platform. Yeah. And they, um, so 
it was actually through that experience of being sold to by them that I realized I was on the wrong side of the table, that I kind of really became interested in getting into tech sales, into SaaS sales, um, and really explore what was at the time in Toronto starting to be a really exciting and, and booming industry. Um, and almost serendipitously, um, a VP of sales at a company called Post Beyond reached out to me at around that time. They were building an employee advocacy platform and their main buyer persona was actually social media managers, which is what I was doing. And so yeah. he thought I'd be a great addition to the team as an SDR, um, yeah. as somebody who really understood the true pain points of that buyer persona. And so I took a huge leap of faith. Um, I left my job at the Canadian Cancer Society and pivoted into an SDR role at, I think at the time they were only about 20 people. Um, really small startup, had just raised, you know, a round of funding and were really trying to figure out their go-to-market strategy. And I joined as their, their second SDR there um, and started to build out the playbook with them. That leads us nicely because I am fascinated by this. I saw it on your LinkedIn profile that you're a founder of the SDR Nation. Please tell me about that. What is it? Who's it for? What's it designed to do? When did you come up with the idea? How's it going? Tell me all about it. Yeah, um, I'm happy to. So last year, um, when the world slowed down a little bit and we started to um, go into lockdowns around COVID, um, I was chatting with a few of my old colleagues that I had worked with in, in previous companies, um, Charlie Locke and Michael Galliano. Um, and they had this really exciting idea to essentially build a sales school um, to serve the needs of SDRs who, in their experience and also in my own um, often don't get the type of training and enablement and support that they need to be successful. Um, so as you've probably seen, Paul, like there's so many great companies out there that are just starting to build up SDR teams. Um, and a lot of the time, those SDR groups, maybe they'll hire like one or two, they'll report into a VP of sales who hasn't maybe had that much experience in sales development in a long time or ever. Um, and a lot of the time that unfortunately doesn't create the best experience for young people who are just starting to build their sales career. Um, and so we really wanted to change this. We, we thought that sales is an amazing career. You know, we also, we all had built careers in, in sales in different ways. Um, and we sort of set out to build a content platform where we're able to serve the community with some incredible content and training. Um, we also offer our members one-on-one -on -one coaching. So we've actually curated some of the best world-class coaches who you'd probably recognize from LinkedIn. Um, and they're all involved with SDR Nation and offering one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions as well. And we really focus on helping SDRs nail their quota and then ultimately get promoted um, nice. through this sort of community that we've built. Um, and we're now up to almost 300 members, which is really wow. exciting. Um, so it's been a crazy past year. Yeah, is it a paid membership platform or is it done just to support the, the profession? It is a paid membership platform. Yes. Um, we're finding a lot of members will pay for themselves, but uh, also sometimes companies actually pay for members to join as a part of a professional development fee. Yeah. Um, and again, we're kind of finding that it serves this really incredible need where a lot of the time, you know, founders of smaller companies or even sometimes bigger companies don't necessarily have um, the playbooks built to really support their sales development functions. Yeah. And so we've been able yeah. to sort of fill that void a little bit. Yeah. Now, when you say sales development, th these terms, BDRs, SDRs often get mixed up depending on what company you go into and they can mean different things. For some, SDRs do only inbound and BDRs will do the outbound. Do you, how do you differentiate SDRs, say, from an AE for, for, for the purposes of SDR Nation? Yeah, so within SDR Nation, it's anybody who's in a lead generation function or opportunity generation function. So they're not actually doing full cycle sales most of the time. They're not actually closing deals. They're generating qualified opportunities and handing them Both inbound off. and outbound. Both inbound and outbound, exactly. So we've got, you know, ADRs, SDRs, PDRs, inbound SDRs, outbound SDRs. Everybody calls them. Oh, wait, wait, back, back, back up a second. You said PDR. Yep, partner development representative. Okay, okay, okay. That's not a term I come across before. Thank you. I now yeah, I have another right. one for my lexicon. I know. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, mm. What was it you felt that was m missing for SDRs 
that provided the impetus for SDR Nation, other than the desire to help and form a community, which is a brilliant idea. But again, it must have been something you felt they weren't getting, as I said, from the sales enablement community or from the wider training community. Yeah, I think really specific tactical advice, right? Um, we see a lot of theoretical advice a lot of the time in sales development land. So people will toss things around like personalize your emails. Um, but nobody was actually really breaking down like what does that specifically mean? And can you show me like tangibly through examples? Um, and so we, we've been able to bring together a community who are, you know, very willing to share with each other, which is amazing. Um, but again, some of those incredible coaches that are willing to share their knowledge and really tactical, practical tips um, that can help SDRs book meetings and hit quotas. Nice. And how do you manage all of this and do the day job? How do you mix the two of them together? Because I could imagine that being something that would draw, you know, basically it could be a a real time, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say time drain because it's a productive thing, but something that could easily eat into your available time. Totally, it's yeah. It's trivial is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it is definitely um, a huge undertaking. And if I wasn't as passionate about it as I am, then it would probably be really hard to manage. Um, it's something I spend time on in evenings and weekends. Um, so when I wrap up my day at Shutterstock, uh, often I'm hopping on to coaching calls with SDRs um, at other companies, sometimes all over the world. Um, and then a little bit on weekends, that's when I'll take the time to actually, you know, think a bit more strategically about what's next, how can we better serve this community and continue to grow um, so that we can we can expand and add more value to our members. Wow, that's that that is impressive. That's the that's the classical Gary Vaynerchuk sales hustle, right? Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um what I wanted to that let, let's talk a little bit about I'm curious again, talk as much or as little as you want about Shutterstock. I just have a professional interest in it because of my interest in photography. Um uh who do you sell to? Because my only experience of Shutterstock obviously is as a, as a freelancer where you might upload photographs and they would be sold. I, I guess there's parts of the business I'm not even familiar with. I, I noticed that you've, you know, you've got a, a big team. Who are yeah, they selling? For sure. So Shutterstock's evolved quite a bit actually in the past um, five or so years. So the history there is I was actually a part of a, a startup called Flashstock, which was acquired by Shutterstock back in 2017. Um, and I bring this up just because it, it kind of points to how Shutterstock's been expanding our content offering um, over the past few years. We're really like a 360 content solution. So mm. we sell to anybody out there that needs content from small, medium businesses to large enterprise, um, large enterprises in the corporate vertical agencies. We also settle media companies. Um, we recently acquired some really exclusive um, editorial content collections um, as well. So um, really are like a full service content solution um, for our partners all over the world. Um, and we, we do service companies globally. So we literally have sales teams everywhere um, and also contributors everywhere as well yeah. that are creating some of this amazing content. But the content is visual, you know, still and, and, and video based content, right? Exactly. Images, video, music as well, editorial content, um, any type of content you could dream up, we could probably deliver. Um, we actually just started doing 3D content as well, which is really cool. Excellent. Um, I actually, it's funny enough, I think I I uh, bought a, or license, I shouldn't say, I didn't buy it. I licensed a photograph from Shutterstock during the week. It was a prison cell for a, for a video concept I'm working on. That's for another day. Um, <laughs> What was I going to ask you was, yeah, go back a little bit. You, after you left the marketing role and went into sales, talk to me about, you, you did that for how long? And then I want to talk to you about the transition into sales leadership. And I want mm. to spend a little bit of time in there. Yeah. So I joined Post Beyond and I was an SDR there for, I would say probably six to nine months before I really started to transition into more of a team lead role. Mm. Um, but they had nothing when I joined. So it was really figuring out the full go-to-market strategy from defining buyer personas, figuring out what problems resonate, 
um, really building out that playbook um, and then actually figuring out how to book meetings. Um, and oddly enough, my secret sauce when I was at Post Beyond was actually through social selling, which kind of makes sense when I think about it because I was very comfortable on social media platforms, having been a social media manager. Um, but I was booking most of my meetings over LinkedIn and then also over Twitter at the time. Um, started to see a lot of success and then the company mm. needed to grow. And so um, they offered me a position to take on more of a team lead role, which eventually evolved into a manager role. And I ended up building out a team of about 10 SDRs mm. um, by the time that I left. Mm. I, go back to the Twitter bit. That caught my attention because <laughs> I get the LinkedIn bit, right? And that's what a lot of people will do. Um, but the Twitter, what was the... Tell me, what I'm interested in the Twitter is, was it something you went to if you couldn't find somebody on LinkedIn or was it that it was you, you hit them up on both? I'm, I'm curious to know the strategy and what sort of results you had with Twitter specifically. Yeah, so my Twitter strategy was fully around conferences and events. Um, so either I would attend the conferences and events myself or if I couldn't, I would actually just follow the hashtags and engage in content. Um, so same principles apply with LinkedIn. It's really just like participating, uh, adding value to your prospects and like being a part of the community. Um, and so I would do that over Twitter. You know, people would be at an event watching a, a session on, you know, how to use video most effectively for your Instagram strategy. And I would be in there tweeting um, about it as the event was going on and just engaging and being a part of the conversation. Um, to really sort of show that I knew a little bit about the industry and build a bit of credibility that way. Um, eventually those conversations would move um, into private chats and I would be able to actually convert those prospects into meetings to have further conversations. So it was pretty cool. That's the dream of social selling when it works like that. <laughs> it, 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 is nice. it is. And I, and I think the bit that people miss out on is the hard work bit, which is the engagement. They just think, well, from my experience, and I could be completely wrong with this, but it's one that I think managers complain to me about is where people will just use LinkedIn to send out blasts. Totally. And what I'm hearing from you is that before you ever kind of make, make that move into the private chat, if you like, where you start to engage, that there's a lot of work that goes in up front in terms of getting noticed. Totally. And that's the bit that most people don't want to do. Yeah, it's really the long game, right? It's so much easier mm. to just send an email and get a response saying, yes, I'll take a meeting or make a cold call and have somebody literally agree to a meeting on the spot. Um, but it really needs to be a different approach that you take um, mm. when it comes to social selling, which can be frustrating when you're an SDR mm. and you've got a quota usually that's based on your monthly quota um, and you're feeling that pressure and you want to just get going and ask people for meetings. Um, but you can really tarnish relationships pretty quickly yeah. um, if you jump the gun. So it's important oh. to build. And have you any experience using video as part of your social mix? Yeah. So when I was an SDR um, and then also when I was leading the team at Post Beyond, I actually used video quite a bit. It was kind of when video was really just starting to be introduced um, to prospecting strategies. Um, so it was a bit newer. I do find that over time, it's lost a little bit of that impressive magic um, of being, you know, as new and shiny and exciting as it once was. Um, but I had a pretty good meeting booked rate off of video. I, I think I was booking at one point like 25% of my meetings actually from sending those videos. So um, mm. it was a pretty effective strategy. But again, it just takes a, a lot more work, right? A lot more research. It has to be very mm. personalized. Um, so it, it's definitely more challenging to scale. Interesting. And what I, I do want to, I'll get into sales leadership in a moment, I promise. I'm just <laughs> curious though, professional curiosity on what you, because he, what you said was, what caught my attention when you said was, it was interesting because, it, you know, it was new and what's new gets attention. And therefore when it's no longer new, it wanes a little bit. And that's true of all, all prospecting. So what in your experience do you feel is working really well right now? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, right now in the prospecting space, definitely more of that uh, long game relationship driven selling, right? So buyers are way smarter than they once were. They're also getting 100 more SDR emails a day than they once were. And so you really have to get into the minds of your prospects. 
I really do think that the best way to reach out to people is over LinkedIn. It does depend on the industry sometimes. You know, there are certain industries that just don't spend a lot of time there. Um, and you ultimately have to be where, where your buyer personas are. Um, but I do think just like starting conversations in a really natural and organic way um, is the best way to build rapport and ultimately um, results in, in the biggest deals a lot of the time, both on my team and I know on, yeah. in other organizations as well that we're working with through SDR yeah. Nation. And those conversations you're starting, again, I'm asking the question here, is that there you come in initially as, as a, maybe making a comment rather than just sending a cold uh, introduction, right? You got it. Yeah. Or just being human. Um, I was actually, you know, I, I like to practice what I preach a little bit um, with my team. And so I was doing some of my own social selling the other day um, and reached out to somebody and we just started having a conversation and, and I opened it up by just asking him, you know, what are you excited about or what are you looking forward to over the next few months? Um, and he wrote me this really in-depth response that very clearly pointed out about five different projects that we could potentially help with. Um, and that was a perfect hook for me to say, oh my gosh, you know, you've got all these amazing things you're working on. Sounds cool. Like, let's have a conversation about how we could potentially mm -hmm. partner. Um, and he was really open to it. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely love it. Because you get this stuff all, a lot about, you know, it's cold calling dead and no, you know, social selling is the way. And I think it's a circular argument. I think it's, it's it doesn't go too far. You, you you have to just go with what works. And and sometimes I think it's what works for, for the individual. I do know some, some people who kind of completely stay away from the social media side because their talent is actually in striking up conversations face-to-face. -face. When I say face, I mean over the phone, but that's mm -hmm. where they're naturally comfortable and they're good at that as well. So, um, But I, I love to hear these examples of how you can build out and try alternative approaches and find something that suits who you are as an individual. I think that was the, mis the, the problem in the past. People didn't have those options. Either you were a, somebody who loved the phone or you didn't succeed in the job. And totally. I think that's no, what I'm hearing is that's no longer true. It's definitely no longer true. Yeah. Um, and I think it's sad, you know, I think gone are the days of forced dialing 150 dials a day. Um, I hope at least. Trust me, there's a lot of organizations still doing it. <laughs> well, they yeah. should be. Um, but yeah. I, I hope that, you know, there becomes more space for SDRs to really lean into the things that they're passionate and excited about. Because yeah. I think that's where the magic happens. The SDR yeah. role is so hard, right? It's so hard. It and so really you're is. not. Yeah, it is you the don't hardest sales job there is. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. Mm -hmm. And what bugs me always is that it's often seen as the most junior job. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it isn't, it shouldn't be because you, you, you bring together so many skills. You mm -hmm. have to be able to craft a good introduction, which is not easy. That's a lot of skill and they don't teach that typically in school. Uh, you have to be able to, you know, nurture a relationship. There's again, you have to be that, that, that journalist, the doctor, there's so many hats you wear. And I, I, I always feel that. A good SDR finds, nurtures, develops a real opportunity, hands it over to an AE. It's downhill from there. If it's done well, it's downhill. Mm -hmm. Totally so, agree. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I would say, too, that that's one of the my bigger, more personal missions, I would say, around SDR Nation is is really changing that industry mm. perception. I think that that perception is changing at the SDR level. They're realizing how valu valuable they are, hopefully more and more. I think even sales leadership is seeing that, but we really have a lot of work to do when mm. it comes to companies actually changing mm. their minds yeah. um, and starting to implement that change, reflecting it in compensation, right? Like tell me it's not extremely valuable for an SDR to book, you know, 10 highly qualified meetings with your top enterprise companies. Like, you know, tell me that's not worth more than $50,000 a year for you, right? You know um, what? It could be worth, it could be worth 50,000 per opportunity for a big opportunity. There's no totally. question. Exactly. So I think the real challenge that we have ahead of us is, is getting companies to change their minds about that a little bit. Um, but we're getting there. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. So I mm -hmm. wish you the best to look with that. It sounds to me like a wonderful initiative. And you're right. It is SDRs need, 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 need representation, the need, the need to form this, 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 this profession, because I do think it's standalone to say the AE side or the field sales side, 
it's it's very different. And, and as I said, it is the hardest. You're just trying to strike up and build relationships with with strangers. <laughs> it's like, it's you know what it, it is. What it, I, I listen. I'm I'm going around here in circles because as I you have my you know I, I I've always had to do this as part of my own job, and I know it's the part that I look forward to the least. Be, and it takes most energy and effort uh, to do that, is that initial phase. But listen, I want to move on and talk about the transition then into leadership, particularly that first year. What, was, what did you learn about yourself as you went from carrying a quota then to full-time management where you've now got a, a team who's carrying that quota for you? Yeah, so many things and still learning a lot um, on a daily basis. One of the hardest things for me to go through in that initial phase was really learning to build relationships with what were once my peers and now they report to me in a very different way. Um, it was challenging to kind of get over that, like I'm going from being your buddy to your boss kind of hump. Mm. Um, and, you know, I really struggled with that and, and figuring yeah. out, you know, how do I earn respect, um, but also, you know, still have those personal relationships that I've formed so deeply and ultimately are really important to my leadership style as well. Um, mm. Also had to train my brain out of just do it yourself mode. So what I mean by that is, you know, obviously as a leader, you have a quota, you're coming mm. down to the final few days as somebody who's not afraid to roll up your sleeves. Um, you know, one of my first instincts a lot of the time was actually just to hit the phones or do some social prospecting. And I really had to train myself not to do this um, yep. and to focus on actually enabling my team to do that yep. um, in state instead. So that was a bit of a transition, a bit of a transition in mindset. Um, but I, I'm quite comfortable um, with doing that now. Here I am, I guess, almost five years, six years of leadership later. I love it. I love it. And you're absolutely right. I do think I've never had to do that myself. I've never had to manage people I'd, I'd worked with side by side. And I can only imagine how difficult that is because you're trying to learn the job as well. At the same time, you're trying to hold on to these relationships as you kind of shift around a little bit in terms of the dynamic between you. And I can only imagine that that's exceedingly difficult. I, I mean, I experienced it with other people doing it and they went way too far it's almost like they completely shut themselves off from people and of course that doesn't go down well either but at the same time there it's there it is different so hats off to anybody who can manage that and uh yeah it's it, it, it obviously helps if you got good people as well but you said something interesting you said you felt you had to earn the respect i would imagine that you already had it maybe not in your own head but with the people you work for because you wouldn't have got the promotion otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. And so it really was a mindset for me more than anything. I don't think anybody had a doubt in my mind uh, or doubt in their minds as to why I'd been moved into that role. Um, but it was really convincing myself that I deserved mm. to be there and mm. that I had earned to be there. Because it's funny now, um, you know, when I first joined Flashdoc, which was eventually acquired by Shutterstock, um, I spent my first few weeks actually just showing the team that I could do the job, right? Like I was an SDR in the aisles with them. I was cold calling with them. I was email prospecting. I was getting shut down in the most embarrassing ways um, just to show that, you know, I was there um, in the trenches mm -hmm. with them. And so mm -hmm. I think that sort of like peer to peer style um, leadership actually translates really well and can be really inspiring and motivating mm -hmm. to people. Um, so I eventually learned that I actually just had to lean into that a little bit more um, rather than be afraid of it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. What did you learn about leadership in the past since, since you started to uh, move into that, that role? Yeah, again, so many things, <laughs> um, especially I think, you know, even over the past year and a half with COVID, um, it's even changed and, and further developed my perspective um, on leadership and, and how to be an effective leader. I think one of the things that stayed at the heart of my leadership style the whole time is ultimately it comes down to people, right? And the more you can understand what really motivates people and what people really care about um, and give them the space to not only be incredible professionals, but also just be themselves, um, that's when you really get the best out of people. And so that's been a huge focus of mine um, you know, throughout my time as a leader. 
Um, mm. That has been more challenging, obviously, mm. in a remote setting um, to get mm. people to open up to you that way, to really understand what their dreams are. Um, it's a lot harder to build those relationships mm. um, in, a, in a virtual setting. So mm. uh, that has not been without its challenges over the past little while, but you know, we figured it out. So I've mm. learned that it just has to be a lot more intentional, right? You really have to um, you know, be like, okay, listen, usually I would take you out for lunch to do this, but, um, you know, I, I want to spend the next half hour just really getting to know you. Um, mm. and I know that that's a big ask. So, you know, I'm going to start off by just telling you a little bit more about me and be vulnerable about my life for a minute. Mm. And hopefully after that, you feel inspired to, to share a little bit more about, about yourself. And it doesn't always happen in that first conversation. Um, but over time that relationship builds, um, and it can be a really, really powerful thing. And if you're able to get that, that core motivation and that dream, that's when you get those people who, you know, when you're down by your 10% under your quota in the last few days of the month, those are the people that are going to, you know, spend the extra couple hours a day just grinding it out on the phones for you or, or making those extra steps um, because they just really care um, about the relationship that you've built. Yeah, yeah. that makes perfect sense. Um you said something about lockdown and I was what went through my mind when you said that was to ask you about what's it like in Canada and our focus over here, you know, in terms of the restrictions working from home and how does that impact how you go about leading a team? But I'm just curious generally, first of all, what it's like in Canada, because I hear from people in the States what it's like, and it seems to be very different depending on what state you're in. Yeah, so we were having a bit of a rough time at the beginning of the year um, in Canada. Our vaccination rollout was definitely a lot slower um, than the U.S. However, over the past couple months, we've really accelerated. I think we've got about 75% of our over 12 population um, vaccinated now, which is incredible. It's actually like one of the top in the world. Um, so we're in a way better spot. We've still been pretty slow on the reopening plans, so we don't have things like indoor dining or anything like that yet, but hopefully soon. Um, what that's meant for us in terms of the office over the past year and a half has been, it's pretty much been shut down. There was a small time where people were able to go into the office by choice um, following really tight health restrictions, of course, um, based on localized guidelines. Um, I've always had a global team, and so there's always been a virtual element of my job. Mm. Um, but I also always used to, you know, fly down to New York or fly over to London and have those team bonding moments. And I've definitely missed those um, over the past year and a half. And it's challenged me in different ways to still find ways to build those relationships. Um, and then also just to, to create a culture on the team where people generally, genuinely care about each other, too, mm. has been even more challenging mm. You know, you really have to be like, so, like, what did everybody do over the weekend? <laughs> and yes. really tee it up for them um, to yeah. talk about those more personal things um, because it doesn't happen in, you know, over lunch or going out to grab a coffee um, or anything like that anymore. Mm. What would you keep from the past two years that you, you felt was actually positive and that you think, yeah, I'll keep that? So I'm not going to lie, I was super nervous about my team's productivity when we first went into lockdown. Um, I think that there's definitely an energy of being in the sales aisles when you're an SDR that you get just from sitting around your colleagues. And so I was really nervous about activity levels and how those would be impacted and how that would ultimately result in um, my numbers. But I would have been so impressed by the incredible people on my team. I think like to to cold call around your colleagues is one thing, but to cold call in your parents' basement is a whole nother set of passion and motivation that has had to be unlocked. Um, and so I would actually keep um, that trust that I've now built in in my team to be able to be extremely productive in a work from home setting. And, you know, at Shutterstock, we will be moving to a hybrid uh, model moving forward where we're in the office sometimes and, and not in other times. Um, and I really support that. I really believe in that. I think mm -hmm. that the, we should have those opportunities to create those in-person relationships. But I love that my team knows that I trust them. I love that they have flexibility um, a little bit more with, with their work-life balance. Uh, and I really want to keep that moving forward. Does it make it easier for you to hire people? Like they don't have to be in, in Toronto, for example. Yeah, um, I, 
would say it's definitely increased the hiring pool a little bit. Um, we still will have, you know, times where people are forced to go into the office. We're not forced, hopefully want to go into the office, encouraged, <laughs> encouraged to go into the office. And so we still are uh, focusing our hiring strategy uh, based on certain locations where we do have offices um, mm. globally. Um, however, you know, I think we would be a lot more open to it if um, we did find a really strong candidate in maybe a, a less typical region um, mm. that we were really stoked about um, and potentially make a move on that candidate where we wouldn't have before. Mm. Who influences you most? Well, that's a big question. Mm. <laughs> Who influences me most? Um, I would say... Who influences me most? I would say probably mostly like my family still, and and a lot of the the values that I've been grounded in since I was um, a kid. Somebody who's very motivated by achievement um, and and puts a lot around that. Um, and yeah, again, just like really genuinely cares about people. Mm. I'm also very influenced by my close friends, and then also you know people that I work with very closely um, in in the workplace as well. Um, I also am quite an active voice in the LinkedIn community, right? You, you can probably see me on there. And so I'm definitely influenced by some of the things and inspired by some of the things that I'm reading on there as well. Um, so I would say, you know, between family, friends, close colleagues, and then a little bit of my virtual environment that I've created yeah. for myself. Those are my biggest influences. Right. And as you look back on your life so far, what are you most proud of? I am most proud of the people that I have helped take the next step in their career. Um, I, for me, that's like, I can, and I could probably name all of them, which is crazy. Um, I, there's nothing that makes me happier than seeing people get promoted um, into mm -hmm. the next step. Um, and that's happened at Shutterstock, at my company before, but also through SDR Nation, like really focusing on coaching and mentoring um, and helping people take the next step. Um, that's the most rewarding thing to me at the end of the day. Um, you know, I, I always also love those end of quarter moments or end of year moments where the team does really well or the company does really well. And we have the opportunity to celebrate as a team. Um, that's an indicator to me that I'm in the right place in leadership. Um, I'm not the kind of person that gets super stoked about my own personal achievements, but um, the most exciting things for me are, you know, when I can actually celebrate with people that I really care about. I, I predict some, some time in your future that you'll want to, uh, you know, when, when, when the, the corporate phase of your life is done, that you'll want to start a business coaching and training people. We will see it, TBD. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that's probably a pretty good prediction, though, Paul. Yeah, I, I think you probably saw the seeds of that, and, and and you're nurturing them away in the background very, very well. And I, yeah, it's great to see it. And, and but you're right, your motives. It, it's interesting to hear them. Um, it's it's. I, I think you do need those motives to be successful in that business. It has to be driven by health. That that's the payment, if you like. Uh, the, the the money side just pays for the the mortgage and everything else, but the 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 real payment, the real satisfaction, comes when you see other people succeed, and uh, that's a that's a it's I want to say it's a rare gift. It it's not on it's not common. It's good to see it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. And what I wanted to ask you was around. Yes, talk to me a little bit about some of the as as you, you moved sales leadership. Yeah, looking back over say the last five years, where do you look into yourself where you found some real challenges that you had to dig deep to overcome, and what lessons did you learn as a result? Yeah. Um, there definitely has been a lot. Um, I would say some of the biggest challenges that I've been faced with. Um, are actually just earning more credibility in the organization. I think um, sales development kind of has this stigma around it or this sort of legacy um, legacy impression that it's you know very junior, um, not as important, um, here to just support the rest of the organization. Um, and I think earning you know a voice at the table um, has been really, really key to, um, my most recent success in leadership over the past few years. 
Um, and that's been a hard journey. I think a lot of it was honestly convincing myself that, you know, I deserved that seat at the table. Um, but a lot of it was, you know, coming up against sort of that, that stigma that exists around the, the profession and the industry as well um, and challenging that um, and, and finding ways to build those relationships. Um, that's been hard. I would say it's also been really hard at times where, you know, I've had to make tough decisions on the team. Um, of course, I am somebody who really cares uh, about everybody that I work with, as I mentioned a few times. And so in those moments where, you know, there are performance challenges, um, those are always really ha hard conversations to have. Um, however, because the backbone of my leadership is, you know, somebody who's really involved um, and, and really, you know, looks out for my team, um, a lot of the time, even though those, they sting a little bit in the moment, um, those people I actually have really strong relationships with um, still even to this day because it was the, the right move to make even for them, even if they didn't realize it in that moment. Yeah. Are you the eldest child by any way? By any I am. How did you guess that? <laughs> Paying attention to what you're telling me. It, it's... <laughs> It is. You can. It's. It's. It's fascinating to watch it. Of course, these are generalizations. They're. They're not true of everybody, but very often with the eldest child, you get uh, drive uh, mixed with self doubt, and 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 a caring for others, and um, and they're the kind of things that are coming that I'm picking up from what you're telling me. That there's an incredible drive, courage, to m move things. There's a, it's tinged with, and by the way, when I say it, it's, I don't mean it to sound negative when I say it's self-doubt. Self-doubt, we all have elements of it and it can be a powerful driver. It's, I think it's probably some of the fuel be, be underneath the drive, if you like. So maybe they're two sides of the same coin. And, and, and that also looking out for others, it's often you'll see, particularly, you know, I've got three children, so I've seen it in my own that the eldest is four years between my eldest and the next one. And like... <laughs> I'm I'm the eldest. You're paranoid. It's like you're dealing with China when you take them home from a hospital first. I'll never forget the first bath we gave our eldest, who's downstairs now and he's 28 years of age, right? And I take him home from the hospital. I say, we took him home from the hospital. And you're driving along and every person on the road is a son of a bitch. They're all driving too fast, way too fast. And you get home, and I, I, the first bath, I am not kidding you, picture this, we've got the bathtub on the ground, filled it up, and we have a manual, a book open, an instruction manual on how to bath, because we were living in England, so we didn't have any parents around us to, to teach us how to do this. And we're there, literally, step one, test the temperature of the water with your elbow. So I'm doing this, and my wife's saying, is it okay? Yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, fine. And you're literally step two, step three. And so that's 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 the treatment that the eldest child gets but then on the flip side when the next one comes along it's you want to lie in on a sunday morning so guess who, who who looks after the younger sibling or when the younger sibling is playing out on the street who gets told look after your brother or look after your sister it's always the eldest child so they grow up with these additional in some respects they're 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 they can maybe look like burdens, but they're not. They're actually gifts because they, they give you something that sometimes follow-on children don't get to the same extent. And uh, as I said, it could probably feel like pressure and weight, but uh, you're, you're actually... It's funny, there's a great book called Birth Order, and it looks at the... Now, I might have the numbers slightly wrong, but let's say there's 23 astronauts for the, for the Apollo missions, missions to the moon um, back in the 70s. Out of the 23, 22 of them were eldest children. And the other one was only a, was, a, was an only child. And you see that also with, uh, now again, the book is an American book, so it deals with American examples, but US presidents and the, the vast majority of presidents or of CEOs of organizations are eldest children. So you can see there's a connection there between the two of them and um, yeah, so. I would say that's a pretty good read. <laughs> If I've ever heard one. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a great book. It's definitely a great book. And it talks about youngest children who get all the attention. And again, you have a disproportionate number of actors who take to the stage, people who seek attention, mm -hmm. um, are, are youngest children. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, Megan, I'm, I'm conscious of time. And I had a couple of quick questions I wanted to ask you before I let you go. Mm -hmm. um, 
and more of a kind of a, a, a slightly personal nature in that I want you to imagine that your house is burning down and all your family are safe. And, and if you have any pets, they're safe too. Okay. <laughs> and you've grabbed your phone, your computer, all good. And you're outside and the fire officer says to you, listen, uh, we think we have this under control. You've got time to go in and grab one object. What would you go in and grab and why? Uh, that is an interesting one. This is going to sound kind of crazy, but honestly, there isn't, I'm not like too much of a material person. There, there really isn't too many other things that I think I would need. Um, mm -hmm. My fiance is a video producer, so I might be inclined to grab one of his cameras because I know he would be really sad if he lost all of his camera equipment. Um, but I, I really am not somebody who's particularly attached to material possessions. Luckily, all of our important memorabilia pictures are digitized. Mm. <laughs> um, so I would probably just prioritize my safety and the safety of my loved ones and not yeah. necessarily risk going back in. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And when your time on this planet is done and you've shuffled off this mortal coil and somebody decides to write a book about your life, what would you like the title to be? Ooh, um, oh, these are such good questions and I wish I had more time to think about them. <laughs> what would I like the title to be? Um, I think something about... I mean, so this is a title of a, a book that already exists, but something like this, um, something like Brave Not Perfect, um, like, you know, like Courageous and Riddled with Doubt or something like that, um, something that could really um, resonate with people and connect with people mm -hmm. like me who are uh, filled with drive and, and motivation and, and hungry for success. Um, but have also, you know, had little, little battles, internal battles here and there um, with themselves on their way to get there. Um, yeah. I think that would would be my legacy. Something that speaks to women specifically too, I think um, could be could be really interesting and, and a legacy that I'm definitely um, inspired to leave behind is making a mark for, for women in sales. How um, much of what well. you do is, is driven by that? How much of what I do is driven by... The, the from a it's not creating a legacy for women it is creating maybe an example for women mm -hmm. I, I like a when i say an example i mean like an exemplar of a because there's lots of you know historically in business there's lots of male role models people can put that's the word i'm looking at role model not example mm -hmm. role model yeah a lot of it um and i would say not just women but marginalized communities as well um you know supporting them traditionally oppressed communities is really important um for me and in, in the line that, of work that i do and you'll actually see that in the makeup on my team um i think the industry stat is you know most sales teams have 25 maybe 20 27 percent women um my team we've got a 50 50 split actually most recently we even had like a 60 40 women to men split um so creating more spaces for that but we also have so many diverse backgrounds on the team um you know 75 percent of the team wasn't actually born in the place that they currently live the whole team in total speaks 13 different languages um and so bringing together a group of people that come from diverse backgrounds and supporting them to be their best and grow into their career um, is definitely core to who I am and what I really believe in. That seems like a wonderful place to leave it. Megan, certainly I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an honor, a privilege, and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.